Hi, my name is Mike Dillard, and this is Self Made Man, the podcast for those who want to leave their mark on the world and create a legacy of honor, integrity, and achievement in every aspect of your life. I'm glad you're here, and once again, it is time to forge your destiny. Well, today we're going to have a little bit of fun talking about a subject that is near and dear to my heart, which is cars. Now, as many of you know, fast cars are one of my biggest passions in life. I actually started racing in 2008 when I entered and finished the most dangerous race in the world, the Baja 1000. Since then, I've won the Mint 400 in 2014 and then competed in the Pirelli World Challenge last year. And all of this started when I bought my first supercar in 2008, which was an Aston Martin Vantage. From that moment on, I was hooked. Hooked on the speed, the beauty, the art, the technology, the heritage, and the story of motorsport. And what you quickly realize is that the right car is a tool for transformation. When you step into one of these machines, you're transformed. You feel different. You are suddenly the wolf in a street filled with sheep. You can't help but appreciate the fact that you're sitting in one of the rarest and most high-tech machines in the world, and that driving it to its potential requires years of training and practice. As you can imagine, it's a very similar feeling uh, that you have when you put on a tuxedo and you look in the mirror and you're like, damn, I'm looking pretty good. Or for the ladies, maybe it's a a new pair of Manolos. I mean, hell, if you're driving a $200,000, $300,000, or $400,000 car, you're doing something right in life. And if that's what gets you excited and you're passionate about, then fantastic. That's awesome. Now, with that being said, purchasing one of these vehicles is a minefield that could cost you an incredible amount of money, which is a lesson that I've had to learn the hard way. Over the past, I'd say, eight or nine years, I've owned a second Aston Martin. I've owned three Audi R8s, three Ferraris, a 2005 Ford GT, and then two different Porsche GT3s. I've owned a lot of these cars, but in the beginning especially, I really didn't understand or appreciate how the market works, and I lost a lot of money. It's only been over the last couple of years that I've figured out that you can actually own these cars for, gosh, the same price that you would pay for a Honda Accord or a Ford F-150. You know, for example, I purchased my last Ferrari 458 at Sticker for $285,000. It was brand new. I drove it for a year. I put 6,000 miles on it. I tracked the hell out of it. And then I sold it back to the dealership for around $270,000. So that means my total cost to own that car was around fifteen grand plus the cost of insurance. Now, if you'd purchased a really nice Ford F-150 truck, you'd have lost the same amount of money in depreciation over that single year uh, of ownership. So how much the car costs is irrelevant. The only number that matters is how much it's worth when it's time to sell it. Well, today we're going to learn how to own these kinds of cars without losing your shirt. And in fact, you can even get paid to drive them. To help us do that is Pejman Gadimi. So Pejman is a friend of mine. He's a very successful entrepreneur with a similar passion for cars. He owns a luxury car rental company, and he's the founder of ExoticCarHacks.com, where he teaches people how to purchase and sell these supercars responsibly. You know, should you lease or should you buy? Should you pay cash or should you finance them? Should you modify your car or leave it stock? How much should you pay at the dealer? How do you negotiate? And how could you even find an allocation for those super rare hypercars like the McLaren P1 that could literally put a million dollars in profit into your pocket the moment that you get it. Well, we're going to dive into all of these questions and more today. So please help me welcome Pejman Gadimi. 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Dillard here. And today we have an episode that I'm unbelievably excited about because we're going to be discussing one of my favorite topics on the planet with one of the biggest experts in the world when it comes to that. And uh, that topic is fast cars. And the gentleman joining us is none other than Pejman Gadimi. So Pejman, welcome to the show, brother. It's nice to finally have you. Hey, it's nice to be on and I'm glad we're reconnecting again. Absolutely. So... You have a couple of very successful online businesses. You have Secret Entourage and uh, you have Exotic Car Hacks. And I found, gosh, Exotic Car Hacks probably about a year ago, I think, is when you really started putting a lot of attention to that. But essentially, the thesis is, is that you teach individuals out there who are into cars how to responsibly buy their dream car, let's say a supercar, Ferrari, Lamborghini, McLaren, whatever it may be, in a way that... Uh, really, they don't lose their shirt on. <laughs> so uh, I was all ears, definitely caught my attention. And I thought this would be an awesome subject to discuss for everybody out there in our audience who's into cars as well and who has one on their dream board that they're pursuing. Because this is a very, very easy way to lose a ton of money. But if you're smart about it, uh, and specifically use your methodology, uh, you can actually make money driving your dream car. Yeah, not only you can make money, but in, in most cases, I always say that, you know, every luxury asset out there that is of quality is an opportunity to park money into rather than spend money on. And so I'm excited to be on your show and be able to kind of educate and help teach people about this very uh, new way of thinking that's really, you know, been around for me for almost like 20 years now. But then again, it seems to be so new to so many people. Well, let's actually dive into that. Let's Let's rewind the clock and... Hear a little bit about your story and how you became an expert in this area. Yeah, so I'll, I'll focus primarily on the car thing. But, you know, I, w I was born very poor, right? And, you know, I started working very young. I was a very young bank manager at 18. And then uh, by 23, I was an executive in a Fortune 500 bank in Washington, D.C. So I was overseeing uh, quite a number of banks and quite a number of employees, you know, in all aspects of lending, uh, managing money to retail and everything in between. And so I, I got a lot of exposure into the banking world very, very young, you know, without having a formal education. I was like that hustler that was just learning on the job day in and day out and really putting the same effort I should have been putting in school, but instead on this job, which was in finance. So, so I got very early exposure to how banks work in general. And this was very important part of the process because banks and the way like lending works plays a financial role in a huge role in real estate and of course in any type of lending which can portray the cars and everything in between and so you know i got i got a lot of exposure there and then uh, unfortunately where i should say fortunately now my role in the bank was terminated when i was about 25 years old and i was kind of forced out the door i had a side little business which was a car wash business at the time which wasn't doing much revenue like anywhere from 80 to 100k a year in revenue and I decided since I was out of the bank, but I wasn't poor, I already had a nice car and everything else. And like most people, I used to think of cars as, hey, you know what? What can I afford a month? You know, can I afford a $3,000 a month payment? Can I afford a $500 a month payment? How much do I want to allocate to my car? And I used to always be that guy that was like, let me go on these calculators. How much of my income should be geared towards a car? You know, all that stuff that you're thought very young is the way to think of, you know, buying cars and buying stuff. You're like, you shouldn't spend more than X, Y, and Z on, on these types of things. And so from a very young age, I was like most people. I used to always like spend money on cars. And every two years when I would trade my car in, I would be like faced with this huge bill that I was like, man, it cost me 
$30,000 to drive a $70,000 Mercedes for a year. You know, I was like, this is crazy. So I, I kept losing money, but I said, as long as I keep making money, I don't care. But then when I turned 25, and like I said, when I, when I got out of banking, uh, I took my car wash business and started a little tuning business out of it, uh, which at the time was nothing more than just um, me customizing cars and customizing my own cars. And uh, as you remember back then, we had a wonderful recession coming up. And, and one of the things that people don't realize is everything I teach at Exotic Car Hacks is actually kind of like the, the byproduct of something I've been doing since I was that young when I started a company called VIP Motoring. You see, during the recession, Mike, I went ahead and bought a lot of distressed inventory from dealerships in the Washington area uh, that could no longer afford to keep their inventory due to the recession. And I bought it extremely discounted. And so I was stuck with all of these cars that I was buying really, really cheap, uh, but yet I still had no buyers for them. I wasn't a dealer. I was just literally parking all these cars uh, and I had no way of getting out of them. And so one of the ways that I figured out then would one of the things that I figured out then would be an opportunity, which was very basic. Then it was just the idea that during recessions, luxury assets are cheap. And then after recessions, they typically stabilize back up if they are a value. And so when I was buying Ferraris then and I was buying, you know, like uh, anything I could find from Lamborghinis to rare Benzes and everything else, and I was buying them and storing them only to realize that most people were that wanted to typically invest in banks, stocks and everything were also sitting on the sidelines because of this recession. And so I combined the two in my company called VIP Motoring, where I allowed people at, a, at, at that stage back then to invest in exotic cars. Meaning instead of like buying them and driving them, they would give me money and I would literally allocate it to a car and let it ride out the recession, then resell the car. And so having had that business since then, I learned and started building a team around every little concept of depreciation schedules based on models, based on makes, and just kind of like understanding where are the trends going, where were the previous trends going. So if you're into cars, like I would look at what's happening with the 360 Ferrari, how would it affect the 430, you know, and then I, I'll have data to use on the 458 and so on and so forth. And so I had every make model and everything pretty much pinned down to every year depreciation schedule based on miles, years and everything else. And then having done that and doing that, I started realizing that there's a significant pattern in the way these cars depreciate and that it's not so random, even though it may seem that way to the untrained eye. So there's an actual pattern as to how these cars depreciate and what the mileages are at which point they turn from collector cars to daily use cars, to low mileage cars, to, you know, uh, everyday beaters and are considered no longer collectible and so on and so forth. And so I created all these classification categories and built a really successful investment firm out of it back in 2005 that still to this day is still owned by me, just no longer managed uh, and directed by me on a daily basis. But fast forward a couple of years later, I now take all of this knowledge that I've had. And since the, the huge success of Secret Entourage, my online platform that teaches entrepreneurship and business, I've been able to combine uh, the way to teach online using kind of that platform with now this uh, past methodology that I've been using through all these years to now just bring it forward and uh, literally now just teach under this new platform called Exotic Car Hacks, specifically focused on exotic cars. So that's how we, it got us to where we are today. So if we could, let's take folks through your process and your methodology, maybe go through some of the biggest mistakes people make, what they need to look out for when, when they want to pursue that. 
You know, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned after buying, I've probably gone through about 10 what you, you know, quote unquote exotic cars now over the years. And the realization I've had is not what you're paying for it. It's what you, what you're going to sell it for that matters more than anything else. Yep. And let's just, uh, let's just take it from the top and, and dive in. I want to say, let's, let's pick a dream car and, and figure out how I could get it responsibly. <laughs> sure. I mean, I mean, I think most people, you know, who, who have been listening to your show know that you had a 458 for a while. And that was, that's a very popular car amongst people in your Ferrari guide. But what's your specific car that you think your audience would love to hear about? And I'll kind of work around that car specifically. Well, you've got, you're a, fan, you're a McLaren fan, right? You've got your, your 570 that, that you're in love with. I, why don't we use that? Because I'd love to hear your take around the brand and, and if there's a reason for that or if it's just your personal preference. Sure. I think, you know, the one thing with McLarens, though, that, that people don't, don't seem to like realize is that for the longest time, McLaren was this brand that was all about like this higher kind of brand that was very exclusive, but was about million dollar cars or half a million dollar cars. And today they've become a very like Lamborghini-ish brand that's kind of widely available with, you know, mass production numbers for some of their basic cars. And when I say mass production, context to exotic cars anyway, it's not to Honda Civics or anything. One of the things that I would say people kind of misunderstand about the world of exotics is actually similar to what you just said. It's not about what you uh, are owing on the car, but rather what you can sell it for, right? It's not what you buy it for, it's what you can get out of it for. And and so it comes down to if you buy the car right, then ultimately you're never actually losing money if you can get out of it for the same price. So that's the basics of it. But in in short, let me teach people the basics of how exotic car hacks work. If you understand that things that are of luxury and quality have what you consider a bottom cash value, which is what I kind of teach in my program. So it's really simply understanding as an example that a McLaren 570S if in good shape and kept properly, has a bottom cash value somewhere on around $140,000. So if a car has a bottom value of $140,000, that means that at any given time, if it is, like I said, in good shape, it's never going to be worth less than that to anybody to write a check for. Meaning at any given time, a dealer would write a check for it or a person for that dollar amount literally overnight. And so if you understand what the bottom cash value is of things you're buying, then you typically are never spending any money. You're just only investing that amount into it. So uh, an example is if you buy that same McLaren we just talked about that has a bottom cash value of $140,000 for $150,000, then you're only potentially spending $10,000 because at any given time, you can literally walk into a McLaren dealership and say, write me a check for this car for $140,000. And so by understanding that, you are ultimately investing or should I say transferring some of your money or wealth into that process and risk exposing yourself only the excess. And so it doesn't mean that you have to sell the car for 140. It simply means that you have to understand that the 140 is ultimately what you're, where your safety netted, where your guaranteed money is. And then the 10K over that is your exposure to potential loss if you can't get out of it properly by selling it the right way or uh, things happen and you, you're not attending to the car properly and so on and so forth. So the first step is to understand that each and every car out there has a bottom cash value based on its history. And the way we come to this bottom cash value is simply by understanding that most of these exotics hit their bottom cash value roughly between uh, three to five years uh, of existence since their uh, release. And I say that because most exotics have warranties for three years. 
and have schedules of five years before manufacturers start actually discussing the replacement that comes out three to four years later. So most exotics are seven to 10 year lifespans before the, they upgrade to the next you know, car and so on and so forth. But uh, again, within five, you usually see where the brand is going. All the models are on the road. People have started putting miles on them. And you'll also see that uh, a lot of cars are now out of warranty and where they're settling, what expenses are and so on and so forth. So, so that's the first step is to understand bottom cash value on any luxury asset you ever buy. The second step, uh, once you understood that and what your risk exposure is, is to really understand what the schedule of potential maintenance is going to be. Most people are really afraid of exotic car maintenance because our whole lives were thought that you have to go to the dealership. You have to go and do your annual services there or God forbid something happens, they'll never cover it on the warranty. So you have to spend $3,000, you know, a year or 5,000 or 10,000 on brakes and so on and so forth. And these are things that are simply untrue. I mean, you, it's, is it good to use a dealership? Sure. If you like losing money, absolutely. But there's plenty of locations uh, across the United States and across the world that can service and work on exotic cars without having any of uh, the issues or glitches that even a dealership would have. And so for basic maintenance, there's third parties, uh, which we break down on the site as well for people, places they can go to service their cars. So oil changes that are usually 3000 would cost 300 that's another, you know, huge important part is to understand that dealer is not your best friend when it comes to servicing your car. And then the, the other component from a financial standpoint is to understand that lending plays a significant role in your ability to hedge your investment. So we all as savvy individuals understand that there is a cost opportunity to cash, meaning like if we spend $200,000 cash on a car, then we understand that we're obviously in an, in a position where we can't use that cash elsewhere. Now, a lot of people also look at loans and financing on exotic cars in the same exact fashion as they do a normal car, which they're like, I'm going to finance this car over five years. It's going to cost roughly, you know, like 4,000 a month. Wow, that's extensive. I don't know if I can afford that. I'm going to need a large down payment and so on and so forth, which is why in many cases they seek out leases and other things that are complete losses altogether. And I'm going to, I'm going to tie all of this for you real nice into the McLaren as well as why leasing is the worst thing you can ever do for yourself. But so the, the point becomes that, you know, conventional financing, yes, is very expensive if you're financing a $200,000 car, but exotic car financing can stretch out as much as 144 months if necessary with very small down payments. And so if you have $200,000, you're willing to drop on a car. What if you dropped only $10,000 of that on a car and actually took a payment for, let's say, 12 to 24 months while you enjoy that car. Well, in most cases, people would say, well, why would I want to pay the interest on a 12 year loan on a car? Well, you're never going to keep the car 12 years, so it doesn't really matter. What you're doing is saving your cash flow and hedging the bank's money in order to still be able to park the bank's money into this, you know, asset now, no longer a liability and be able to get out of it, you know, in 12 months for either what you paid or more than what you paid and ultimately be able to pay back your note and your true cost of ownership was nothing more than the interest for the 12 month period, not even for the 12 year period. So I think, I think those are the three basic things every person needs to understand. It's not have, uh, understand that everything has a bottom value when it comes to luxury assets. Understand that, you know, servicing and upkeep does not have to be done the conventional way and that there's ways to leverage 
other people's money to be able to get into these things so you can leverage your own to grow your business or financially move yourself forward or even put money in something that's maybe more like understandable or long term, such as real estate. So that's kind of the core of the program. As far as the McLarens themselves, so the McLaren releases a, a new car every two to three years. And so that has dramatically changed the playing field of depreciation schedules across the board for all cars. Because typically, like let's say Ferrari releases an F car every like eight, 10 years versus McLaren every three years. So, so, but what ends up happening is McLaren is ultimately releasing models that are not direct competitors to themselves. So they're not releasing a lot of successors. They're just releasing different types of models. And so what that does, though, it changes the market a little bit because it, it allows bottom cash value to appear a lot faster than some of these other makes like Ferrari, like a good 458 will depreciate to its bottom cash value in five years versus a McLaren uh, 570S, like the one you asked about, would do so in about three years or so. And, and so that's why I brought up the 140K you know, bottom cash value, because we're seeing that currently on lower spec cars and we're seeing higher spec cars sell as low as like 165 to 170, uh, which is a big deal. You know, like it, it's incredible to see that a car brand new at 220 uh, is immediately going to be worth almost 50K off, you know? And so that's that's where the, the, a lot of the depreciation goes for, for a lot of people who don't understand how that model works. So for the McLaren, that's really, you know, like how that, that kind of model uh, landscape works compared to other manufacturers. Yeah, so uh, a couple of things. I buy my cars the same way, and I, I was kind of glad to hear you say that because, you know, you hear the, the school of always pay cash and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I want to pay as little as possible because there's a huge opportunity cost, like you mentioned, to parking two or 300 grand into a car versus into, you know, let's say an apartment complex. Mm -hmm. So I'm the same way. I take the longest loan I can possibly get. I put the least amount of money that can possibly put down. And I usually am in and out of a car in about 12 months, 12 to 15 mm -hmm. months. So that's exactly how I, I, I go about it. Now, obviously with uh, the bottom bottom value here, that means the safest way to get into these cars is to obviously get one used, right? Well, used, but right, used, but just to be fair, because people have a negative quotation of used, you know, when we think used, we think, oh, you must have erased your car, that's why it's used, etc. I, I think most people like in the exotic car world know that we all get bored of our cars every like 6, 12 months and want something new. But I think people looking from the outside in don't realize how quickly people get bored of these things. Uh, especially when they've had more than one, you know. Oh, most most you'll find will have two or three thousand miles on them. Yeah, exactly. They're just broken in. But I think that's a big distinction, right? And you you, you mentioned this a few minutes ago. If you had bought a 650s McLaren 650s brand new at the dealership and paid sticker for it, you lost your shirt on that car. Uh, you know, you lost a hundred hundred plus grand, and I I know that because my best friend Brent <laughs> went through that process <laughs> just now. But you know, one, one thing I'll say real quick, let's explain to people why that happens. Because a lot of people don't seem to understand why does a car depreciate $100,000 literally the moment it leaves the lot, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the simplicity is really there. It's to the fact that people don't realize that manufacturers build so many incentives and commissions for dealership owners and also build so much incentive in marketing and other things that are built into the first original MSRP of a car that literally it doesn't really cost $330,000 to build a McLaren 650S. It costs them somewhere around 100 to 120. And what ends up happening is there is roughly that in addition to that, 
there is even more money going into, you know, the, the potential pockets of manufacturers because they obviously have to stay alive and make a, a business turn and so on and so forth. And there's warranty work and everything else. But if you consider the real value of something in its immediate state, it's almost like for a McLaren, for a British car anyways, it's almost a 100K markup in the car immediately. And so, you know, what it, the, the question I pose people is if you could buy a 650S brand new for 330, walk in and be the first one to own it, then great. That, that's good for you if you want to do that. But what if you could wait literally six months and buy the same car with 500 miles on it? Like not even barely even touched, right? Barely even driven without a single scratch on it and could buy it for 220, like 110K cheaper. It, wouldn't that just immediately alleviate your immediate loss of $110,000 that you're going to put into something else, you know? So, so typically that's the state of used cars we're talking about here. We're not talking about a car that's had 25,000 miles, has been ran to the ground, needs a lot of maintenance and so on and so forth, you know? And I wanted to make that distinction because people, when they hear used, they don't realize that the exotic car market used is very different than your Honda Civic used, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely agreed. Now, let's talk uh, a little bit about why a lease is such a bad idea. So, you know, a, a lot of people don't actually understand how leases work. What they usually say is, well, I'm going to lease a car because in the old days, we we're taught that the tax advantages, you know, are much greater on leases than anything else. Right. So so we just get a bigger write off if we have a lease because we can write off the entire payment. But when I explain to people what an actual lease is, they're like, well, that doesn't make any sense because what you're buying with a lease is you're buying the worst part of a car, which is the initial depreciation for the first three years. So you're going to the dealership and you're saying, listen, I want to pay the most amount of money for this new car. And I would like to give it back at a moment where I believe it's hit close to its bottom cash value. But I would like to only pay for the upside of that, not the bottom. So it doesn't make any sense because what you're buying is you're buying the first and worst years of depreciation a car has. So what a dealer does when a lease comes in for people who don't really understand the financial aspect of lease is they say, okay, you're buying a, let's use that same 650S McLaren as a good example. You're buying a McLaren 650S, the sticker is 330. We're going to charge you 330. But what's going to happen is you're going to give us 50,000 down and you're going to pay, let's say the rest of it over three years, which is $60,000, which is the leftover of the depreciation in three years. And you're going to break that down in 36 months. So I'm um, just for the sake of argument, you just have a payment of $3,000 with a down payment of 50 grand. And someone may say, well, great, because I get to write that off. But if you really look at the end of the year, what did you really do? You spent $110,000 plus, you know, plus all the, uh, the cost of the lease itself. So let's say $130,000 to own a 650S. And you let's say you wrote off all of that and you got maybe 30000 of that back because of, you know, tax advantages and everything else. So now you're $30,000. But you still spend almost $100,000 over three years driving a McLaren, which is $30,000 each year. And that's assuming you're a good accountant and you can get, you know, 100% of your write-off, right? So I usually tell people, what if you used my way and had, let's, in my way, you can actually have write-offs too, but let's assume for the sake of argument, you have zero write-offs. Let's assume you have zero write-offs, but at the end of each year, in the worst possible case scenario, because you wanted that newer car, you lost $10,000 a year instead of, 30,000 a year and you had no write-off. Well, at the end of the three years, you lost $30,000. You still have the exact same car, 
And who cares what the write-off was since you like literally spent a fifth of what you would have spent on a lease anyways, even if you got one fifth of that back. So ultimately the point becomes that with a lease, you're buying the worst part of a car, the part that nobody wants to assume and which is the depreciation. And with the bottom cash value strategy, I have at Exotic Car Hacks, what you're buying is you're not paying for the asset, you're transferring either your money or bank money into the asset, and you're only buying the risk exposure up based on the car you want. And so some cars you can get away with having risk exposure that's negative, meaning in a good way, you're technically positive in the car the entire time you own the car. And in some cases, if you say, hey, you know, I've made money, I don't really care, I want the latest and greatest, you can still do that and and still hedge your bets and and lose a lot less money. I mean, a good example of that, I don't know if you saw recently on social media, I just got rid of my new body NSX and the NSX came out, you know, I had spec mine to $205,000 uh, and I still paid using my strategy uh, only $160,000, even though it was brand new. That was like 40K off sticker and that was literally like, while there were no incentives on the car, this car was brand new, everybody wanted one, meaning everybody that wanted one was gonna spec one and pay full price for one. Dealers were sometimes asking 15K over, and I'm able to get 40K under sticker, and I'm able to then drive it for seven months, and then I kind of understood what's happening because it's a brand new car and it's only out for its first year, and I decided to dump it, and I took a $5,000 loss after driving a $200,000 car for seven months, you know? Well, let's, so, let's talk about that. How did, you, how did you get it for 40 less? Well, you see, like in, in, my, in my strategies on, on Exotic Car Hacks, I teach people which cars and, and which dealers to buy from. And what I mean by that is the reason why dealers are willing to sell cars significantly lower is because to us, cars are fun. To dealers, cars are liability. Cars are, uh, are ultimately cash sitting on the lot that if not moved is not making a profit. And so for them, for dealerships, it's all about the turnover of cars. It's not about collecting cars. For us, it's about enjoying cars. And then our focus comes down to, can I sell that one car? For a dealer that has 50, 60, 70 cars on their lots, they don't really care about that one car. What they wanna do is move as many cars as they can, as long as there's a profit in each car. At some point within there's a specific rule I call the 30, 60, 90 day rule. At every 30 days, 60 and 90 days, a dealer reconsiders uh, its option on the car as far as where it is in the market, such as if it bought a, if it bought an NSX, you know, like on, on day one, it's excited to sell it at a premium. On day 30, it has to reassess what competitors are selling the car for. At day 60, it starts getting worried if the car hasn't sold or gotten a lot of action. And then on day 90, it looks at its exit strategy on the car, which is how do I get rid of it or get this thing off my lot so I can invest the same 200K into another car that will bring me 20 or 30% in return, right? So, so the first thing is most people don't understand the margins on these cars. And that's one of the key things we teach at Exotic Car Hacks. The second thing is using this 30, 60, 90 day rule, you can literally look on Carfax, and this is just good value for anyone buying a car, even if it's not an exotic, and take a look on Carfax and see when was the vehicle offered for sale right there on that specific dealership. And based on that then, make a decision as to, okay, this is the car to go after. Because if a car has been sitting 90 days, then a dealer is excited to get out of it, even if it doesn't make money, as long as it can either break even or take a minimal loss. And remember that a lot of car dealers, to them, they're only looking at auction data. And so data changes significantly in 90 days on newer exotics. 
it doesn't change that much on maybe a 20-year-old collectible Ferrari, but it's going to change a lot on a 2016, 2017, 2015, because new model years are coming out and, and new model years are depreciating. And so a dealer hates keeping a car more than 90 days. And so when you see uh, a car sitting on a lot for a really long time, then it's an opportunity to go in, even if it's new, and provide uh, an escape route for the dealer. So you have to first understand which dealers are, are the ones most vulnerable to this because they have limited inventory. They're not huge, huge franchise dealer. And then the second thing you have to understand that is that franchise dealers, even the McLarens, the Ferraris, and all of these guys, they have what you call floor plan financing. Floor plan financing is when the bank lends them money and the manufacturer lends them money uh, on a credit line to keep all of these cars on their lots without having to pay for them for the first 90 days. And interest on that loan kicks in at 90 days. So dealers don't want to keep cars that are new on their lots 90 days because then they're paying for them to literally be there. Uh, and with these numbers being at 200, 300,000 a car, you can imagine that that's not a good position to be in, especially if you haven't been able to move it in 90 days. What says you're going to be able to move it the next 90 days? So you're looking for an escape. And so I teach people how to identify these escapes and then go in and literally be the solution the dealer needs, which is why they're willing to give you huge incentives to take the crap that they can't sell. And just to clarify that, a lot of people will say, well, if a dealer didn't sell it, what, me, what makes me believe I can sell it after? Well, the reality is that dealers, again, don't focus on that one car. They're focused on all cars. They photograph all cars the same. They list all cars the same. They, dealers don't get attached to that one car saying, this is a very special car because I haven't seen a lot of white on reds this way and that way. They look at it as, okay, it's an NSX. How much options does it have? What it should be called? Who would pay what for it? And then they put a number on it. They're not looking at like specifically what does the NSX market want? Do they love this? Is this the iconic JDM color of its day and so on and so forth? But you as an individual can, you can become selective in what you buy, but dealers look at numbers, which is why a lot of times they miss the mark on how to sell their cars. That's great. That's great stuff. What's the number one rule people should know when it comes to walking into a dealership and negotiating? Uh, never believe a dealer. I know it's going to sound wrong because there's a lot of good dealers out there and they're going to listen to see I'm already on like the most wanted list by dealers. They're like, why are you sharing all this? But, you know, I tell people, I'm like, it's not about distrusting a dealer, like they're lying to you or trying to con you, is that the job of the dealership is to make money on their cars. So, so don't believe a dealer when they tell you, oh, I can't afford to take it any lower you know, like I, I just I just don't have money in that. I paid too much for it. Well, just because they paid too much doesn't mean you have to pay too much. So it's irrelevant. And then the other thing is also if they tell you like, hey, this car never had paint work or this car has never been an accident or Carfax is clean. Don't just believe what you're told. There are certain tools we, we offer on the site that help people understand how they can do clean inspections, how they can make sure that they're literally getting what it is they're being told they're getting and how to read and understand dealer jargon to to make sure that they are not being just manipulated into a sale and understand clearly what they're buying because all of these components are going to matter on the resale of the car and are going to matter at the exit point and so you want to make sure that you know the moment you're told hey look this car is clean carfax is clean then you're going to the dealership and you leave with the car you're all excited you go to your best friend, the mechanic, who looks at it and is like, hey, but this car has been crashed like seven different ways. 
and it's just not on Carfax. And you're like, wow, like I just overpaid for a Ferrari that was crashed seven times. I should have paid 60 grand less for because I believe the dealer. And when you go back to the deal, the deal is like, well, Carfax is clean. I never told you it's never been crashed. I just said Carfax was clean. You assumed it wasn't crashed. So what I typically tell people is the best ammunition you have to understand how to get in and out of exotic cars and make them an asset instead of a liability is purely education. Like everything else in the world of business, it's all about understanding what is happening at each and every point of sales from the time you buy a car to the time you service a car to the time you have to repair a car to the time you have to actually resell the car. So if you understand the process, then then you're not afraid of it and you're not uh, rushed into it thinking you might miss out on the deal or this dealer has seven people looking at this car and so on and so forth. So never get emotional, be educated, understand the strategy, and then go in for the kill and make it count in your favor. So an interesting, an interesting lesson that I learned uh, through this process is the difference between owning and driving your dream car versus investing in exotic cars over the long term. Let's say, let's say kind of in a Jay Leno-esque museum fashion, right? Where, okay, I want to pick up uh, some specific model cars that are appreciating, they're becoming historic, and you know, they could be worth a lot of money 10, 15, 20 years from now. Uh, so I had the desire to do that about two years ago, and the first car that I, I wanted to start my collection with was a 2005 Ford GT. So that's that's one of the cars that has really started to appreciate in value significantly over the last few years. So it's like, okay, this is this is going to be great. So I picked up the 2005. It had 1,500 miles on it. I was it was a single owner car, and so it was the second owner, and it was great. But the problem is, is that I uh, that was also my only exotic car at the time. I got out of the other one that I was in the Ferrari and. And, uh, and I quickly realized that, well, wow, I've got this Ford GT now. It has 1,500 miles on it, and this is becoming a classic historic car. Every mile that I put on it <laughs> is, uh, is detrimental to the value. And now all of a sudden, I'm paying for this beautiful car to sit in my garage because I'm penalized when I drive it. And I'm mm-hmm. like, this is horrible. <laughs> this is a horrible mistake. So... <laughs> It's extreme turned into a nightmare. You know, you're like sitting there, like I can't drive this thing. No, so that you know, that's something I wanted to to, to cover here is the difference between those and you know, you know, those two scenarios. Be careful what you wish for, and and make sure why you're buying the car. I love the I love the 2005 GT. So if I could do it over again, I would have got and bought the highest miler car that I could have found, twenty, thirty, forty thousand miles on it. And I would have just driven the crap out of it and enjoyed it every single day because that depreciation's already been accounted for by somebody else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, the, the thing is, one of the things I tell people is don't don't buy a collector car to drive it and don't buy a driven car to collect it. So, you know, in other words, the car you're buying, no matter what the model is, falls into a category based on its usage and past mileage. So if you're buying a thousand mile 2005 Ford GT, like you said, that's a collector grade car because it doesn't have a lot of miles on it, usage, and I assume the paint and everything is pristine. So that car is not going to be a good car to because you're paying a premium for that mileage. So it's not a good thing to be racking up miles and taking it to 10,000 miles because at that point, it loses that collector grade and becomes a driven car. And so that's going to lose significant value for driving it. But if you had found the 2005 Ford GT with, let's say, 14,000 miles, 
and driven it to 19,000 miles before selling it, there wouldn't be that huge of a difference in the buyer looking for that car at that point because you're no longer changing the category of the car. So typically, one of the things I tell people is, first off, be very clear as to what your intended use for the car is. If you intend to daily drive an exotic, it's doable. I mean, I, I do a Bentley GT every day and a G-Wagon, you know, I rotate between the two. But one of the things I tell people is don't buy a car that's got very, very low miles and is in pristine garage kept like, like you know, garage queen type car and then say, well, I want to daily drive it and put 10,000 miles a year on it. That's probably a bad idea because no matter what, you're going to completely change the dynamic of the next buyer for that car. So, so typically be fair with yourself about what you want to do. And if you're someone like me who loves driving and I don't like garage cleaning any of my cars, even the McLaren, I drive the crap out of it. I think cars are meant to be driven. Life's too boring to life. Life is too short to drive boring cars. So it's meant they're meant to be driven. So one of the things I say is buy more than one and buy one for each purpose. Like maybe have a really nice like AMG GT for you know, your daily commute, if you like something racier, and then maybe have something for the track like a Viper, and then you want a garage queen, a 458 or something like that, that may make sense. But that way you spread the mileage across three cars or two cars or however way you want to do it, or you have a daily and you have a weekend car depending on the car. But at the end of the day, it comes down to self-honesty and being like, do I have enough self-control to choose? I'm not going to drive the car when I'm going to the club and I'm not sure if I'm going to be in a good shape to drive it back where I'm not sure where I'm going to park it or what the roads are to get there. So it all comes down to like just having that self-control and understanding that when you're using our strategies, you're using the strategies of an investor, not so much a regular car buyer. So you're understanding that you have to protect your investment as much as, you know, the next guy that's buying an exotic car, but you're doing it in a more financially savvy way. So you're not losing every single penny you have on every trade you're making. Let's talk about the ultimate kind of holy grail scenario as far as I see it, which is getting the ability to buy one of the marquee limited edition models that come out from any of these brands, right? So for McLaren, it was the P1, for Porsche, the 918, and for Ferrari, the uh, the LaFerrari. If these are all very, very limited run production cars, they're usually only... Each dealership in the country is usually only given a, a couple of allocations, and they're going to give those cars to their absolute best customers. But if you happen to be able to be one of those folks and, and to essentially earn that position at that dealership, the moment you pay for that car and it arrives, you're going to make yeah, anywhere from 500000 to a $1 million plus in the value that, that that's going to appreciate immediately. So for me, that's a goal of mine that I want to I want to get to here at some point and in my experience the way that I've been going about that is being very loyal to my local dealers my Porsche dealership and my Ferrari dealer I've bought 3 Ferraris from the same guy I've bought 6 7 Porsches from the same guy all of their best models and now I've earned a spot in both of those places for these now limited edition models so I've got one of the first allocations for the new GT3 RS coming out uh, I'll get to spec that car myself. I'll get to design it exactly how I want. I'll get to pay sticker for it where anybody else will have to wait probably a year for uh, a clear allocation to, to come through. And they're probably going to have to pay 20 grand over sticker for it if they want it then. But how do you view that world and look at that? 
Well, so that's actually the entire world that VIP Motoring's entire revenue model is based off of. While we started investing in, in basic exotic cars, today our primary uh, long-term investment strategy is built off of hypercars, no longer exotic cars. There's actually a, a lot of misconception in that world, too. Uh, one of the more common misconception is that your local dealer will be the one to kind of become your your gateway to one, uh, especially if you have a good relationship, when in reality, there is many opportunities for you to still get allocations, even if you've never bought a car from a dealer, if you know which dealer to reach out to. There's a big thing where, especially if you live in major cities, like in LA or, you know, like in, in the main camp, like Chicago, yeah, yeah like the, the big places, right? Like where there's a lot of traffic in these cars. Like there's a lot of money and there's a lot of traffic. Typically, it comes down to how many cars you bought there. Are you one of the richer guys that's kind of showing up, spending money with the dealership? Do they want to make you happy? Do you know the GM really well? Do you know the owner really well? And so on and so forth. If you're really interested in a hypercar, the best thing to do is to first off, start understanding who is getting allocations for previous hypercars. So if you look at like, for example, the 918, which you're familiar with, I'm sure the 918 Spider. That was a car that came out like a couple of years ago. And if you actually looked at which dealers got them, you'll notice that some of the dealers that got them were in the middle of literally nowhere. And, and they were the ones sitting on units rather than having people line up to pay them. But yet there was like a two year waiting list at the dealer in like L.A. So so what how ends up you, happening? Is how do you find that out? How do you find out which dealers have cars just sitting there? Are you just looking on, on car gurus and... So, so yes and no. So what you do, because the cars don't usually appear on car gurus, right? Because right. a lot of them, I mean, get sold before then. Some, you know, if they sit long enough or the premiums are high. One of the things I would look at is when you see cars starting to hit the road, right? Either A, have conversations with owners. I mean, you're an exotic car owner. That's not hard, you know? Which dealer do you get your car from? Who spec'd it out for you? There's not that many of them, so it doesn't make it that difficult. You know what I mean? Like if they, if it was a mass-produced car with 6,000 units on the road, you'd be like, yeah, I'm not going to talk to 6,000 owners, you know? But when you have a car that's maybe 100 units deep within its first year, it's easy to be like, hey, you know, who spec'd your car? Who spec'd yours? Where did you get yours from? And you'll start noticing patterns as to where these cars come from. And then you can start seeing, like, for example, I got a GT2 RS allocation out of North Carolina. Which no is, way. Did you really? Yeah, which is completely uncalled for, right? Like, you're like, what, what, are, like, what's in North Carolina, you know? Yeah. But the thing, and I never bought a car from there. The point was that their, their 911 Turbo owner, which is like four of them that had bought a 911 Turbo S from them knew they didn't want the allocation. And I got a call from a friend that said, Hey, they have this allocation and this guy doesn't want his. He just wants his deposit back of 20 grand. He said, can you bail him out? I said, hey, I'll give him 10 grand over if he gives me his allocation. And Porsche won't let you do that, but there's strategies around that too, around taking people's allocations if you want to buy them you know, and so on and so forth. But the point becomes that the biggest misconception is that your local dealer has the power when in reality, you have plenty of dealers across the US and even overseas who can literally ship a car to your local dealer if you do the deal with them and not even not even have to worry about all types of customs and everything else. Sometimes it's an issue based on allocations, like Porsche will only allow X amount of cars in the US versus X amount of cars overseas, but there's always ways around that if you know the right people. So what it comes down to is just understanding where the cars come from, being able to not only have discussions with owners of previous cars, and then the other thing you can also do is actually take a look or make a relationship with your local dealer and ask them if they can help you by understanding who is getting allocations across the U.S. 
uh, some of the dealers can actually look that up by calling Porsche, for example, or Ferrari or whatever, and find out like where the allocations are going. The way I do that, like to get away from like being nosy or being that guy that's like going to steal an allocation is I tell them I don't want to spec my car to look like every other person's car. So if they can share with me like which colors are going where, it'd be really helpful. And then what happens is they'll call and they'll be like, oh, we got six white ones going here, one blue one going here. Oh, there's no green one spec yet and so on and so forth. Get it? So it kind of helps like understand which hemisphere, which corridor has the most allocations and why. And then you can clearly see by just going on the dealer websites how big of a dealer they are and how many cars they move. And that should help you ultimately gauge that. The best ones are the small dealers where people don't realize that the owner of that dealership also owns other other groups that may be getting allocations at other dealerships. But he also has one coming to that smaller North Carolina dealership that no one's looking at because no one around there is buying these kind of cars. Mm. Yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. But it's definitely worth pursuing because how much do you think that the GG2 RS is going to be is going to be well, worth? Well, I'm already offered 100 to 150 over sticker. Yeah, exactly. Like, and the car's not even here. Like, that's I mean, it's not even like physically going to be here for another like four months. Right. One of the last things that I wanted to cover with you real quick Two, one, one really quick question. How do you handle shipping uh, a car? Cause a lot of these cars, the best deals, they're not going to be in your backyard. Most likely never maybe, in your backyard. Yeah. Yep. Maybe it's coming from LA or Miami or Chicago mm-hmm. or wherever. And you're going to have to have the car shipped. What can you recommend uh, to people when it comes to that? Should, should that be included and negotiated for free? If not, what should they be paying? Uh, it's up, it depends on the car. You know, like I always tell people, if you're buying an ordinary exotic, like an Aston Vantage or even a Vanquish or something ordinary, like a 458, that's pretty common. Uh, they, you know, they have lift kits. They have ways to get on trucks and so on and so forth. And dealers selling these cars typically have a good relationship with one or two carriers mm-hmm. that they have ability to join the deal or at least join cost on the shipping. Tro- cost coast to coast is roughly like 12 to 1500 bucks. If it now that's assuming, you know, enclosed carrier, someone with good insurance or, you know, that that's going to be careful with the car. It's not that much money, especially in context to a $200,000 car, uh, especially if you're saving 20, 30 grand from buying it next door, you know, so the thousand is OK. But in some cases you can get it thrown in, depends on where the dollar is. Some cases they can do costs. Typically, I tell people I have a resource page on my site, too, where people can really get a a look at different brokers that are specializing in the exotic car trade. So they're the ones kind of finding trucks to go in and out of cities to move cars. And these guys usually have what you call a spot left on a truck. That means you have to wait an extra two, three days, but you get to save 50 percent over conventional shipping with the same care because the truck is full of exotics. So it's not just like one exotic and four normal cars. And I typically tell people, don't get cheap on the shipping. A lot of damage can happen in shipping, especially if you hire a company that doesn't know what they're doing or are not careful. The best shippers are the ones that decline shipment rather than people who just take anything. Uh, I say this because, you know, I've seen in my time, many people take like, for example, G wagons are very tall and they're like, yeah, we'll take it anyways. And the roof gets damaged in transport, et cetera. But that's why I say reputation is key and and hiring people who have moved these kind of cars before is very helpful, even if you spend a couple of hundred bucks more. You know, it's worth the piece of money. For sure. Absolutely. And making sure they're insured. Yeah. Um, All right. Last last question here for you. Let's talk about modifications to mod or not to mod, right? 
Yeah. Oh, I love mods. You know that. <laughs> well, this is a this is a lesson I learned the hard way, and and that's why I want to ask you because I know you've just gone through this process with the five seventy. But a couple of years ago, I had a Ford Raptor as my ranch truck, and I made this thing just unbelievably badass. I had it painted in flat dark earth. I put these black military esque looking wheels on it. I put uh, rigid LED bars on the top and in the front grill. Put an exhaust on it. And it was just the coolest truck that I've ever seen. And I pro, uh, the, uh, the supercharger as well, uh, the Velociraptor is essentially what I turned it into from Hennessy. Mm-hmm. Right. So I probably put, I think, 40 grand into the, into the truck. And then when I went to sell it, I could not sell it, on, you know, myself on eBay. I could not sell it to the local dealer where they're just like, yeah, we don't care about any of that stuff. We'll give you the wholesale price of what it's worth. And that's it. Cause that's the only risk they were willing to take. So the lesson I took from that is that those mods are never valued, especially by a dealership. It has to come down to an individual that sees personal value in those mods. But what is your take on that whole subject? So so I think modifications come down to who you're selling the car to and what the modifications are. So I've pretty much modified every single car I've ever owned. I don't think I've ever had a single one that was stock. But every single car was modified to a different level and with different things. So what I mean by that, first off, you never repaint a car. That's the first thing you never do. If you don't like the paint, wrap it, uh, never repaint it. Even if the original color is not very good. Like if you don't like the red, you wish you would have gotten the other red, do not repaint it, even if you have the money, because that will destroy the buyer base of that car. You know, nobody wants to repaint a car. Nobody knows why I got repainted. Nobody knows if it's done right. Nobody wants it. That's stage one. The second thing is basically you got to be able to modify anything you can put on and put off without doing too much damage. Meaning if you do, for example, wheels uh, and they're very tastefully done, great. There's a buyer out there for that. If the quality wheels are better than the factory ones, not just because you think they're nicer or cooler looking, but they're actually better quality and higher brand names than what the factory puts on their cars. Now, again, if someone doesn't like it, you can take them off, sell them on eBay and get your money back, right? But if if some but you have to have the original equipment so someone can make a choice, a personal choice as to what they're willing to take uh, in 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 reference to selling a car modified. If you're buying, for example, an Audi R8, you add exhaust and that includes that exemplifies the buyer base tenfold because now you have a new buyer who loves an exciting R8 over a boring one. If you buy a Ferrari 458 and you or a 488 and you do a turbo upgrade, now you just lowered your buyers because you now have extensive modification that very few people understand or are willing to undertake because it's unknown territory to them. So what I typically tell people is if you're going to modify a car, you got to A, modify things that you can put back to normal and B, understand that with modifications, you're either increasing or decreasing the buyer base for your car when you go resell it. So make sure that you understand what you're modifying and that A, there's an opportunity to put it back to stock and B, there's also an opportunity to increase your buyer base based on that. Uh, so the good rule of thumb is wheels, suspension, exhaust, sure. Anything above that, you're kind of going into the gray area where you have to know the marquee and know the client base for it. Any painting, typically no. Uh, if you're going to do add-ons like spoilers and everything, use carbon fiber. It doesn't need to be painted. It can be painted if people want it, but it can always be put back to stock. And then the, the last thing with that is that if you're ever trading in a car at a franchise dealer, you will never get more money for any of your modifications. So either look to trade in at a boutique dealer 
uh, which only specializes in used low mileage exotics that does want like a modified unique carousel. And two, remember that manufacturers uh, of these uh, aftermarket parts also have huge margins. So typically, if you put quality parts on cars, you're only still getting back 20 to 30 cents on the dollar. So if you're not using my strategies to even buy your aftermarket parts, then and you're paying full price or even you're getting 20 percent off your HRE wheels or your body kits and so on and so forth. You, you know, you're, you're trending towards losing money because even a, a buyer will not pay you a premium for that, if that makes sense. So for me, I look at it as all that stuff I put on the 570S is roughly like $80,000 worth of parts, but I'm in it for less than 17, you know? So, so 80 to 17, can I really lose? No, because I can always put it back to stock and sell the parts on eBay and get my money back, you know? So yeah. I, I look at it as that's where the, you have to kind of have an exit strategy before you go bananas and spend a lot of money on interiors, exteriors, and so on and so forth. Awesome. Yeah, that's good. Uh, that's good to know. Well, Pejman, this has been fantastic. And by the way, I, for everybody out there listening, uh, I joined Exotic Car Hacks probably two or three months ago when you were doing a big promo for it. And the amount of info you have back there is substantial, brother. You, you guys did a really, really great job uh, putting this together. So thank you so much for, for doing that. This is a subject I have lost hundreds of thousands of dollars on over the last 10 years, not having this, uh, this level of experience that you have. So this is super, super useful. Well, I'm happy to. And, you know, one of my things when building this platform was to make sure that ex existing exotic car owners like you, Michael, were now in a place where they had extra options and understood things that perhaps even people who are very good at this, who have bought a lot of exotic cars before and have good relationships with their dealers, can still take in a couple of new tricks that help them minimize their losses, you know, over their course of ownership. Because, it's such a good thing to have an exotic car and it changes so many things. It opens so many doors and it just sucks to have to think that every exotic car has to be a money pit. And so I knew for a long time it didn't have to be that way. So I'm happy to be in a position to be teaching it now. Yeah. I, you know, it's so funny. People always ask, you know, why do you, why do you need this fast car to drive around town? And I was like, once you experience what it's like to be able to put your foot down and scare the crap out of yourself while going to pick up your mail, you realize like, hey, this is takes a, a mundane chore that I used to have to do and it turns it into just an amazingly fun part of your day. It turns it into an adventure. And to me, that's what it's about. Like I just, I have an absolute blast just driving around Austin. Mm -hmm. Well, very cool. Guys, obviously you can go to exoticcarhacks.com uh, to become a member and check out uh, Secret Entourage as well. It is an absolute wealth of information for uh, for entrepreneurs out there also. And uh, Pejman, this has been great, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us and bring us up to speed on this uh, really, really fun subject. I really appreciate you, Mike. Best of luck to everybody listening. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys, so much. And we'll see you next week. Take care.